Hi, welcome to the special season of Lo and Behold. We're a bit and grain podcast about North Carolina, and you're listening to the first of a three-part series on the 1997 Fisheries Reform Act. This podcast is made possible by the North Carolina Sea Grant Collaborative Research Grant Program. I'm Ryan Stansel, your host. Welcome to part one, Troubled Waters. On August 14, 1997, North Carolina Governor Jim Hunt signed into law House Bill 1097, the Fisheries Reform Act, a comprehensive sweeping bill that was meant to improve and protect coastal fisheries in North Carolina. At its simplest, this is a story about the legislation itself, which was far-reaching and unprecedented. In this series, we'll hear from a number of people who are involved with crafting the reform. Scientists, commercial fishermen, recreational fishermen, policymakers, and community members. They will help explain why it was needed, how it happened, and what happened in the years that followed. But beyond the policy itself lies a deeper, ongoing story about a region's changing economy, a cultural clash over an essential natural resource, and a state's attempt to govern. It's the kind of story rural communities across the country know well. Let's begin. North Carolina's coastal ecosystem is special. We have 2.3 million acres of estuaries and 3,000 square miles of open brackish water. With over 9,000 miles of shoreline, we have many ways to access our diverse, thriving coastal habitat that's home for more than 150 species of fin and shellfish. Generations of people have depended on the water for their lives and livelihood. Commercial fishing has been the cultural and economic bedrock of many coastal North Carolina communities for centuries. Not too long ago, thriving fishing communities built their own boats, made their own nets, and caught and sold hundreds of thousands of pounds of fish every year. Commercial fishing is backbreaking, sometimes deadly work, but the families who did and still do it take pride in it. But in 1994, three years before the Fisheries Reform Act, many of these fishing communities were in distress. Things were changing. Fish stocks and landings were down. In 1980, commercial fishermen landed more than 356 million pounds of fin fish and shellfish. Thirteen years later, they landed less than half the catch. States across the South were dramatically changing fishing regulations, and a growing number of recreational fishermen who fish for fun, not for profit, started driving the conversation about fisheries. At the heart of this conversation were two essential questions. How do we protect our fisheries, and how do we divvy up the catch? In other words, who gets what? At about that time, when we began to have uh, increase in population and increase in interest of things on the coast, there were a lot of argument uh, concerning allocation of resources. I mean, we've always had commercial fishing the last 400 years probably. And, uh, you know, recreational fishing began to rapidly increase. So the issue of who owned the fish and what did you do with them became much more prominent. That's B.J. Copeland, the former director of North Carolina Sea Grant, talking about a major change in our coastal economy. By the early 90s, North Carolina's coast had become a major tourism destination. That undeniable economic force and industry brought new residents and stakeholders into coastal policy. BJ is a coastal scientist and former member of the North Carolina Marine Fisheries Commission, which is a governor-appointed citizen commission charged with making rules and policies that regulate fisheries in the state. 
Then, like today, the Marine Fisheries Commission issued rules and regulations, and the Division of Marine Fisheries, a branch of the Department of Environmental Quality, implements and enforces those rules. As conversations surrounding reform swirled, the Commission and the Division were under the gun. It was nothing to be on the front page of the News Observer. We stayed there all the time. And I think one of the reasons was Mr. Daniels, who owned the paper, was a recreational fisherman. He was very interested in the topic. So it got a ton of coverage, much more probably than it deserved. And it was very controversial. In fact, one time I, I asked Governor Hunt, I said, is there anything in state government that's more controversial than fisheries? He said, hazardous waste, that's it. That was former Marine Fishery Commission Chairman Bob Lucas. And he's right. The commission had a reputation for inefficiency and dysfunction. And it had been in the news a lot. Here's B.J. Copeland again. We had a 19-member Marine Fisheries Commission. And uh, that was also a disaster because 19 people can't make any kind of decision. We just argued a lot. We had an unwieldy commission, no way to get there. We had regulations right and left, none of which were related to others. Uh, people were kind of fed up with the whole idea. The Marine Fisheries Commission would announce public hearings to address proposed rules. And often, commission members proposed new regulations in a piecemeal fashion, not a part of a formal management plan. They'd draw hundreds of fishermen who'd only just learned that a new rule was coming down the pipe. Like Copeland said, there was no rhyme or reason to the regulatory process. Bob Lucas, former chairman of the commission, remembers that period similarly. I called it regulation by ambush because we would go to the meeting and I think we ought to do something on crabs. Well, I think we need to do something on flounder. And so we would just do it, whatever anybody kind of thought. There was no rhyme and reason to it. We just did it. And not that it didn't need to be done, perhaps. Tell you the truth, I don't even remember, but it, it just didn't make any sense to me. And I was frustrated with the process for that reason. Here's Dick Brame, a recreational angler and member of the sport fishing organization called the Coastal Conservation Association, on what the regulatory process was like back then. You would just have a problem and you'd throw a regulation at it. And these regulations were often taken in a vacuum. Um, and there were times when the regulations the commission passed and what became law were not the same either. I mean, it was, it was just sort of almost like the Wild West. Around this time, other southern states like Texas and Florida were overhauling their fishery rules and regulations, and the federal government was taking a more explicit interest in coastal management policy. In 1994, Florida had passed a constitutional amendment banning inshore gill nets that left many fishermen out of work and turning to other states' fisheries, like North Carolina's, for a future. The potential influx of out-of-state commercial fishermen purchasing North Carolina's fishing license and the very real threat of a possible net ban here incited panic. Here's the former communications director for the North Carolina Fisheries Association, Sandy Siemens-Ross. The very people who were advocating a complete net ban in North Carolina were buying up fishing licenses as investments, but they were people that really had no intentions of fishing. And fishing families were buying them for every child they had and maybe five in the future. These fishing communities were also coming to terms with bad practices and issues in their own industry. 
Crabbers, in particular, were fearful of the economic stability of the crab fishery. Sandy Siemens Ross again. There were people that were, were setting like 4,000 crab pots at a time, and more than they could reasonably check themselves. Uh, some of them were using a lot of migrant help and sending them out to do it. And at the time, they didn't have to be licensed. There was a feeling that that, that fishery could collapse. As finfish fisheries in the state became more regulated and possibly less profitable, crabbers worried that more North Carolina commercial fishermen would move into the crab pot fishery. So, a group of commercial fishermen from North Carolina Crabbers League of Aware Watermen started asking the commission to be more proactive about regulation. Commercial fisherman Willie Phillips, former chairman of NC Claw and owner of a wholesale and retail seafood company. Because there was a lot of concern at that time that um, the industry was basically becoming the one that could afford the most gear was the one that was going to become successful. And there was no limit on the resource at that time that we could tell, but we felt that it was only a matter of time with the people piling into it because of the restrictions in the other fisheries that we would be overwhelmed with um, effort and the, the catch would drop. They weren't the only ones demanding change. Anglers started seeing trips where they went, whoa, what's going on? You know, I used to be able to come down here and catch X and Y and take what I wanted home or whatever. And um, those, it was changing quite a bit then. So anglers said something's got to be done about this. That was Matt Curran. He's a recreational fisherman and an early member of the North Carolina chapter of the CCA, the Coastal Conservation Association, a lobbying group that served a group of recreational fishermen. Historically, recreational and commercial fishermen had coexisted more or less peacefully. But by 1994, that had changed too. Matt Curran again. Things peaked in about 1980, 81, 82, and they were out of control. There were few regulations on the industry, and it was a heyday for the industry. They loved it, but they'll never see it like that again. Up until that point, there was no need for activists, recreational anglers, because everybody that went to the beach or went to the coast, there were plenty of fish to be caught. Nobody moaned and groaned about it. For the first time ever, recreational fishermen were driving the conversation about fisheries management, and this was causing tension. Former Governor Bev Perdue, who was a state senator from New Bern at the time, explains why. In the early 90s and the mid-90s, you began to see the emergence of economic data that was tied very closely to the tourism industry and water quality. And you had the evidence that sport fishermen were critical to coastal economies. And for the first time, that data began to drive some of the decision-making at the local level. And you put that in conflict or in tension with commercial fishermen families who had been making their living from this catch, this hard work. And these were people, salt of the earth people, who were struggling to keep their economy alive. It was no different than a local drugstore being scared of CVS. It was the same kind of tension. Environmentalist and then state attorney Dan Whittle remembers the conflict too. There's a real debate over who is entitled to those fish, whether somehow commercial fishing got in the way of the public's right to fish. There's a lot of discussion about, from recreational side, that they contribute a lot more to the economy. They spend a lot more money when they go fishing and catch a lot fewer fish, which is actually not 
always true. Environmental groups, and I would say state agencies, were kind of caught in the middle. They tended to agree with both sides on some some issues, um, and so they they played a a role of trying to bring people together, not always terribly successfully. And then the state, you know, Governor Hunt, you know, said to to me and others in a meeting once that um, I can't remember the numbers, but something like you know, commercial fishing accounts for you know a very small percentage of the state's economy, but the time I spend on commercial fishing is a huge percentage of my time as governor. It was the perfect storm. A series of News and Observer exposés on the fishery regulatory process and national coverage on North Carolina fish kills stirred up public interest in fisheries management. The pressure was building. Governor Bev Perdue again. I can remember one forum somewhere down east. Somebody from government was there spouting what the rules and regulations were. And you had this whole side of the hall full of commercial fishermen who'd worked all day in their boots and their fishing clothes. You had folks who understood the struggles of the industry with the lack of the catch. And on the other side was a busload of sports fishermen that had come from all over the state, maybe all over the Southeast, to articulate very aggressively their positions. You also had a Marine Fisheries Division that, from my perspective, was totally incompetent and a fisheries commission that seemed either so pro-commercial or conversely pro-sport that there was never any ability to come together around consensus. And so you had all these things and folks felt so threatened. So all of those conflicting interests at that time make it impossible to leave the emotions at the door and come in and have an intelligent, conversation that was geared toward a common solution. And the tension was so high that the only thing that we could do was move forward with some kind of legislation, I thought, that would at least put a hiatus out there, a brief time out, where we could intelligently and perhaps without emotion evaluate where we were and where we wanted to go as a state. On July 1, 1994, the North Carolina General Assembly established a moratorium on the sale of commercial fishing licenses and created the Moratorium Steering Committee, a group of citizens, lobbyists, and scholars charged with creating fisheries reform. This was a big deal. The state's diverse threatened fisheries, a culture and industry deeply rooted in the heritage of the coast, and a tourism boon that promised economic reward to a part of the state that needed it badly were at stake. Coming up next week, we find out what happened during the three-year-long moratorium process and how the Fisheries Reform Act came to be. There seemed to be a general consensus that North Carolina is an important state for fishing, for fisheries. But as I recall, that was about where the agreement broke down. I mean, it was always whatever conflict there were, it was between commercial fishermen. It was never involving a, a recreational fisherman. I mean, those were the people we saw coming to the fish house for bait or wanting a clue or two on where to catch, you know, whatever fish they were looking for at the time. 
So I never really heard anything about this until the moratorium process began. Thank you for listening to the special series of Lo and Behold, the Fisheries Reform Act, a podcast by Bitten Grain. This series was made possible by the North Carolina Sea Grant Community Collaborative Research Grant Program and the interviewees who gave their time to share their story. Collaborators included Jimmy Johnson of the Albemarle Pamlico National Estuary Partnership, oral historian and archivist Mary Williford, Barbara Garrity Blake of Duke University Marine Lab, Karen Willis Amspacker of Core Sound Waterfowl Museum and Heritage Center, Sandra Davidson, Baxter Miller, and Ryan Stansel of Benton Grain, and journalist Susan West.